It was Christmas 1948 and a Washington DC radio station asked the ambassadors of some of the world's major nations resident in the capital what they hoped for for Christmas. The replies were recorded for a special holiday broadcast. Each ambassador wanted to be a good representative of their nation and so they gave very noble replies. The French ambassador said he hoped for world peace. The Chinese ambassador said he hoped for an end to world hunger. Freedom for all people enslaved by imperialism was the answer of the Soviet ambassador. Now, the UK ambassador to Washington, a very accomplished diplomat named Sir Oliver Franks, well, it seems he didn't really understand the question. Instead of something grand and noble, Franks replied, well, it's very kind of you to ask. I think I'd quite like a box of crystallized fruit. I wonder what they would have said if they could change one thing in the past. What would you say? The defeat of Hitler at the ballot box in 1933. The inclusion of a clause in the original US Constitution that explicitly banned slavery. Those would be my two picks. Oh, and I get two picks because I'm the preacher. You just get one. And before you say uh, Jesus not getting crucified, just think through the consequences of that one. Well, hands up if you answered nothing. Yeah, nothing. You'd change nothing about the past. Hands up. Keep them up. Uh, not many of you. But if the butterfly effect is real, then changing one tiny part of someone's history would have unim unimaginable consequences for the world. And not, not just pleasant circumstances, but evil ones too. So maybe nothing is the right answer, the perfect answer. Because this in all its weird, messed up, anxious, sinful, frail nature, is what God has seen fit to give us now. It's week 11 of our summer sermon series, From Eden to Egypt, and we finally arrived at our destination. We are in Egypt. We got here on the back of a camel with Joseph, whose brothers last week beat him up and sold him into slavery to some passing tradesmen. Of all the stories in the Hebrew scriptures, it's Joseph's I love the best. A lot has happened to Joseph since last week's story, some of it good and some of it bad. He has been sold to Potiphar, a senior official of Pharaoh's. That's bad. But Joseph works hard, respects his master, and finds favour in Potiphar's sight, and rises fast through the ranks of the household servants to be in charge of the house. That's good. 
Then Potiphar's wife begins to take a notice of Joseph, and not because he just has a nice personality. And she demands that he go to bed with her. Turns out he was a dreamboat with a dream coat. That's bad. But Joseph refuses, saying that his integrity is more important. That's good. But the rejected Mrs. Potiphar gets her revenge by accusing Joseph of assaulting her, and he is thrown into prison. That's bad. But Joseph wins the respect of the chief jailer and is eventually re released from jail. That's good. The then famine strikes the region and the weight of human suffering is crushing. That's bad. But Joseph has caught the attention of the Pharaoh, who makes him prime minister in charge of the hunger relief program, and millions of people are saved. That's good. Bad, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, good. Oh, don't wish that the past had not happened. Don't go back and curse the bad. Don't resent the butterfly effect. In doing so, you would undo some of God's finest work. You would remove many vital bricks in God's construction of your life, the beautiful building he is slowly, daily, bringing to glorious conclusion. So, now, on the throne of the second most powerful man in ancient Near East, sits Joseph, contemplating his hero-to-zero-to-even-bigger-hero journey, from pedestal to pit to prison to palace. But he misses home. He longs for the land and the customs of his people. He wonders how his parents are, are they still living? He forces himself to dwell painfully, penitently on his youthful arrogance. How he re re regrets his pride. He's had many years to ponder his brother's violence against him. If only he could see them once more, to somehow reconcile, to experience life together as a family, which his narcissism and their resentment prevented them from enjoying before. Beaten up, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, wrongly accused and unjustly imprisoned. And now our reading begins with kneeling in front of him, completely at his mercy, but unable to recognize him, the men who started all this when they assaulted and sold him, his brothers. What would you do? Your answer depends on your perspective. If Joseph sees himself as the victim of his brother's cruelty, he will use his great power to exact revenge. If he believes his life has been one disaster after another, he will punish them. 
If he thinks God has been unjust sending him all this suffering, he will execute his own brand of justice. At the very least, he will reveal his true identity and give them first-class passage on the world's most lavish guilt trip. But what if Joseph's perspective on his life is none of those things? What if he sees this extraordinary chain of events as being somehow for good? What if he is focusing on living fully today without obsessing about the suffering of yesterday? What if he understands that God's plans for him are for his benefit and growth as well as that of others? What if he's content to surrender to God's will, even though he can't understand it, and even though it has involved terrible personal suffering? Because that is the perspective of Joseph. Somewhere in a pit, or in chains, or in a prison cell, the arrogant young man learned humility. The brat developed compassion. Daddy's favourite had testing the, test, tasted the sobering truth of his equality with the rest of the world. In a verse we didn't read this morning, Joseph says to his brothers, you planned to do me harm, but God intended it for good. What a stunning perspective. To be on the receiving end of injustice the sharp end of undeserved suffering and say, it's okay, God has a plan and it's a plan for good. Now, you may say, well, it's all right for him to say that at the end of the story when everything has turned out well for him. He's now prime minister. Of course he can say that God had a compassionate plan. But what did he think at other times, in that dark, smelly prison, as he contemplated the possibility of his execution? Was he so confident then that God had planned this for good? Or in that pit, bruised and bloodied, and then sold into slavery like a sheep in a market? Was he then so convinced that my brothers meant to do me harm, but God meant this for good? We don't know, but I know how it is for me. It's only when my seasons of suffering are over and I'm enjoying new circumstances that I reach that mature perspective. We learn not all at once, but over a lifetime of little lessons, mini miracles and gradual grace. Forgiveness. The forgiveness that Joseph grew is a process. Sometimes it has taken me many years before I have let go of the suffering someone has caused me. I nurse morsels of resentment. I jealously guard the right to blame someone for my circumstances. I cling on to the injustice I've suffered as if doing so will make the perpetrator feel bad. The truth, of course, is the only person to suffer, is me. St. Paul's 
hear the word of the Lord today. The last step on the path of forgiveness is when you can give thanks for the pain because you know that unless you had gone through the betrayal, you would not be in the better place you now occupy. That is the perspective. Yes, what was done to me was wrong. It caused me great suffering, but even though they meant it for harm, God planned it for good. Why blame someone when their actions have led to my life becoming happier? Why resent something when it has brought me blessings? Why hold on to bitterness when, if I had not been hurt, I would not be in the beautiful place I am now? Instead of being bitter, I should be grateful that God turned a pain into profound blessing. When we can give thanks for the hurts in our lives because of the good that has resulted, then we have perspective. God is working his purpose out as year succeeds to year. No experience is wasted. They all become the raw material for the master builder to construct the most perfect you that is possible. But in order to trust that God has a perfect plan for us, we need to do one thing. We need to let go of the past. Sometimes regrets are useful. They can help us face our failings, repent and make amends. But for most of the time, regrets are a waste of time and a waste of some lesson that God is teaching you. You see, if we are dwelling in regret, we won't be able to spot God's plans opening up before us and we won't experience God's joy. God takes all our experiences, our successes, and yes, our failures, embarrassments, disappointments, and even our sins, and weaves them into the fabric of his plans. God's plan for you and me and the world includes the things we wish we hadn't experienced. God's plan for the world included covid we don't yet know why fully, although we've been making good guesses and it looks like it has something to do with changing our lifestyles, getting things in perspective, getting our priorities straight. But it might be years until we all have the, a global epiphany and say, ah, now we get it. God takes everything including our moral and spiritual failures, and uses them for his purpose, so that even the very worst of evils can be transformed into something positive and from which good emerges. God's life is, God's has your life in his hands. He has your future carved out. Will it involve suffering? You bet it will, but his plans for you are good, yours and those around you. Trust, forgive, move on, and live in the glory of his plans. Amen.